Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, Understanding Diagnostic Technologies and Biomarkers. So important. It's a very important topic, and it's one that really helps to inform your entire treatment, it's, it's, and you'll be hearing from our speakers about this. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And today's program is supported by AbbVie, Foundation Medicine, Pfizer, and Takeda Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. There are over 200 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, New Zealand, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. And it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to learn more about understanding diagnostic technologies and biomarkers. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is William and Joy Rowane Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. Dr. Chris will be addressing an overview and definition of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the context of COVID-19, how diagnostic technology and biomarkers shape and improve your treatment decisions, why the molecular portrait of cancer is so important, and predicting response to treatment. It's really been my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Oh, thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. Um, and thank you all for joining us today. Um, I think as Carolyn uh, has uh, set the stage, uh, the whole issue of biomarkers is a, a crucial one in deciding cancer therapy. Uh, it's also a particularly uh, confusing one. Uh, I think all of us uh, struggle uh, to learn all the various ways that a, uh, a cancer cell and, and, and tissues from the human body can be uh, assessed. Uh, and the technology changes literally day to day. Uh, and we all struggle to try to keep up, keep up with it. And I think as uh, families and patients fighting the illness, um, you know, please uh, beware of the formidable task it is, and I encourage you to use all the people uh, that help care for you to answer your questions. And, and, you know, there really is no question that can't be asked here because this is all very, very complicated, and no one uh, is in a position to be uh, prepared for dealing with all this information. So just really, what, what is a biomarker? I think speaking very broadly, a biomarker is some sort of characteristic of the cancer. And it's a characteristic of the cancer that can be detected sometimes by looking at the cancer and sometimes by you know, analyzing the various components of the cancer, its proteins 
or it's a DNA or RNA. So again, broadly, it is a uh, substance, a characteristic uh, found in the tissues or the blood that can be used to help uh, uh, characterize the cancer uh, and, and help your care team come up with the right treatment. Um, so, you know, the first thing about a specimen or, or um, a tissue um, uh, that uh, is obtained at the time of the cancer diagnosis is that it's looked at by a, a pathologist. And I, I can't overestimate the importance of a, a complete and comprehensive pathologic evaluation. Determining, number one, that a a tissue specimen shows cancer, uh, then, you know, what's the site of origin of the cancer, what's the type of that cancer, is probably the single most critical uh, analysis that's done uh, when the cancer diagnosis is brought up. And it, it can only be done by a pathologist. And we have uh, uh, upcoming up Dr. Kerr, who's going to be talking about this in, in some detail. And just a reminder uh, to everybody is that in 2020, cancer can only be diagnosed by a, a pathologic evaluation of a tissue specimen. There's no blood test. There is no scan. It has to be an examination by a pathologist. So it's absolutely and, and sometimes, you know, people say, well, there was not enough tissue or they didn't have enough tissue to uh, look at uh, to give a, a precise diagnosis. Um, and, you know, the issue of having to do another biopsy or another a fluid removal, whatever it might be to get tissue, it, it, it's absolutely critical. I know if you have to go through it, the last thing you want to hear is another test or the last thing you want to hear is delay, but it really has to be done. And you know, saying what kind of cancer it is uh, very often tells you exactly what the treatment is. So if you have papillary thyroid cancer, it tells you what the right treatment is. If you have medullary carcinoma of the thyroid, it tells you what it is. If it's uh, a, a breast cancer, it tells you what kind of treatment you're going to need. It's absolutely critical. The second thing that's done uh, once you have the diagnosis of cancer is that you look for various proteins. Uh, and one way that's done is something called an immunohistochemistry test. And a lot of common cancers have these tests done. Uh, people uh, that have uh, breast cancers know you're always looking at the uh, estrogen and progesterone receptors. And that's usually done by a protein test. People with prostate cancer know you're looking for the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen, another protein test. And for a whole host of cancers now, uh, lung, I think, in particular, you're looking at an immunohistochemistry test for a substance called PDL1, and this tells about the uh, likelihood that a, a specific cancer will be killed by the uh, uh, immunotherapeutic drug that we have. And, and uh, the importance of that was just, I think, underscored last week where the Food and Drug Administration approved uh, pembrolizumab, one of our immune therapies, not based on any particular type of but based on the, uh, uh, the presence of uh, characteristics of that cancer. 
that would lead to immune treatment, something specifically called tumor mutation burden. So, you know, the kind of analysis people do often can supersede the cancer uh, type. The other thing that can happen is some of these proteins can come into the blood. Uh, Dr. Penson is a, a renowned expert in the use of the CEA test for monitoring the uh, progress of uh, GI cancer. Uh, CA199, CA125 uh, are also being used in various cancers uh, to help uh, uh, decide um, about the, not so much about the presence of cancer, but to monitor its course. Uh, the the CEA went away, it came back, it tells you that the cancer has changed. The um, huge development in the last decade or so, though, has been looking at both the, the RNA and mainly the DNA uh, in the tumor and also in the, uh, in now in the blood. The, um, the, I think the, uh, the poster trial for this in many ways uh, are the lung cancers, so there are other examples as well. So very often now, uh, and actually as a standard of care with lung cancers, the first thing people do uh, as soon as they establish that diagnosis is they do a comprehensive test of the, the DNA in the tumor. Again, this isn't the DNA in you. It's the DNA in the, in the cancerous tissues. And they look for specific uh, genetic changes that directly point to a new therapy. And in the lung cancer area now, there's eight different kinds of genetic abnormalities, and each one points to uh, a new therapy. Uh, and again, it's an evolving field. Two of these therapies were really just approved within the last month. Uh, for a target called MET, M-E-T, another one a target called RET, R-E-T. So this comprehensive DNA analysis, NGS testing, genotyping, a um, uh, lot of different names for it, NGS next generation sequencing, forgive me for, uh, for getting into jargon. So to kind of summarize, so how are these tests used? Well, I think today the diagnosis of cancer is still based on what the pathologist sees, and I think Dr. Kerr will probably address that. Treatment selection, though, is indeed based on pathology, but also uh, by these various genetic tests. So if you have a rearrangement in the, in the ALK gene, you would get a drug that targets ALK if you had lung cancer or another kind of cancer that had ALK, or, or RET, for example. The other thing that is happening now, too, <clears throat> is that the DNA testing, which was routinely done in tissue, can also be done in the blood. Now, those of you that have children or grandchildren, you know now that the way you determine if there's a genetic uh, problem uh, in, a, in a baby is to analyze the mother's blood. They find tiny bits of the baby's DNA in the mother's blood. So we can do the same kind of thing with, with people fighting cancer, that bits of the DNA from the tumor cells find their way into the bloodstream, and those can be analyzed. Sometimes they can be used diagnostically, looking for EGFR or KRAS or other kind of uh, uh, genetic changes that could point us to a therapy. The other thing we're doing more and more now, though, is using the very presence of cancerous DNA as a sign that cancer is still present in the body. So a very good example of that is in, uh, again, patients with lung cancer. I'm a lung cancer specialist. Forgive me for talking about that. But um, there was work done at Stanford where they took a blood test, found cancerous DNA in the blood. They then gave a therapy to totally eradicate the cancer. 
chemotherapy and radiation together. And at the end of that therapy, they, they did another blood test. And what they found is if they were able to totally eradicate that DNA uh, in the blood, uh, the cancerous DNA, that those patients, the cancer didn't come back. It was almost a sure thing the cancer was going to return. If the DNA was still present, it was a trigger to the treating doctors to offer additional therapies to try to get those remaining cancer cells killed. So um, it's uh, a very much evolving field, and this involves DNA. Uh, so in, in to, to summarize here, analyzing the tumor tissue is critically important to the people uh, taking care of, of, your, um, of you uh, in fighting your cancer. Uh, and doing these tests gives uh, super critical information to your healthcare team to choose therapies. The tests also can help monitor the course of therapy. Um, these tests are complicated. Uh, they're changing all the time. And I urge you, don't take on that burden of understanding everything about these tests. Use all the experts you have around you to give you the information you and your family need to fight your cancer. And by doing this, I think we're able to take that dream of precision medicine and make it a reality. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really outstanding and really so informative to everyone on the call, um, really who are probably struggling to understand these concepts, and you certainly made them so understandable, and you really set the stage for the entire program. So thank you so much. Thanks. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Al Benson III. Uh, Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. Dr. Benson will be addressing updates on clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, key questions to ask your healthcare team, including quality of life concerns, guidelines for preparing for telehealth appointments with your healthcare team, and the role of social distancing, masks, and gloves in decreasing your exposure to COVID-19. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thanks so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join everyone today. Throughout the history of medicine, clinical trials have been uh, fully integrated in terms of uh, the care of patients, and to advance scientific knowledge. Oncology, however, is somewhat unique in that in the day-to-day -day care of patients, offering an individual a clinical trial does represent a standard of care and in some cases may in fact be the best choice for an individual person. Keep in mind that every treatment we use in the care of a cancer patient was developed through a clinical trial. And for example, the FDA evaluates the data generated from clinical trials to determine if uh, a given drug should be approved for routine use. And uh, it's also true uh, that in the past, patients have participated in these trials, and now, even in the very recent past, patient participation has led to development of new treatments 
that are now available uh, for people who are undergoing treatment currently. There are multiple types of trials, though. They're not just treatment per se, because there are screening trials, prevention trials. Uh, for example, uh, a prevention trial may include an actual medicine uh, to prevent cancer. So, for example, there have been aspirin trials and vitamin trials, but they also could include trials looking at diet, exercise, and other lifestyle factors. There are procedure trials, imaging trials, quality of life trials, symptom management trials, and survivorship trials, all which are critical and enhance our understanding of uh, factors that might lead to cancer, but also critically steps we can take uh, to help people when they have a diagnosis of cancer and what is the best way to diagnose a person and to manage their cancer over time. Uh, Dr. Chris mentioned uh, the importance of tissue, and many, if not most, of our trials include what we call laboratory correlates that evaluate uh, tumor tissue uh, or blood specimens. And this, uh, this type of work can help us better select treatments for individuals, and this is clearly the trend in oncology, to enhance our ability to select treatments that have the greatest opportunity to help uh, an individual. And uh, this also includes uh, to enhance our understanding of our immune system and to develop uh, better uh, treatments that that may, for example, activate the immune system uh, to help treat the actual cancer. It's important uh, to ask your oncologist if there is a clinical trial available for you and if it might be the right choice. Um, you also have to know when you discuss a clinical trial, what is actually the standard of care? And keep in mind, the standard of care may include multiple different options, or it, there may be very limited choices as part of a standard of care. And in that situation, a clinical trial might be even more attractive to an individual. You should know uh, what are the questions being asked in the clinical trial. And you know, need to know is the trial comparing treatments that are already in use or a treatment that uh, may uh, include commercial drugs but they're being used in new combinations. Or perhaps the trial is a new agent that may be added to standard treatment or maybe a very experimental approach, especially when all standard treatments have been tried. Uh, it's also important uh, to ask about any potential side effects and how such could affect you, uh, including compared to other treatments that might be appropriate for your care. If we go on to discuss uh, questions uh, for your healthcare team, uh, whether you're going on a clinical trial or not, 
it's very important to talk with your family and friends and compose a list of questions that you want to ask. If you have your list in front of you, it'll be so much easier for you to cover important areas of concern that you might have. It's also important to take notes during your visit with your clinician. Uh, or to have someone who will do this for you so that when you go back and review your notes, th this may lead uh, to other questions that you feel will be important, and then you need to write those down also so that they're covered. Keep in mind your healthcare team may include a number of different professionals, uh, such as your primary care physician, the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, surgeon, nurses, including nurse practitioners or uh, physician assistants, dietitians, geneticists, social workers, psychologists, pharmacists, other specialists like gastroenterologists, pulmonologists, neurologists, or cardiologists as critical examples. And it's important for you to know what role each will play in your care, who will coordinate your care, and how often you need to be seen by each member of your team. And make sure you always have your list of questions for each, including ongoing discussions about the medicines you've been prescribed and if using supplements like vitamins or medical marijuana, for example, are appropriate uh, for you. And also to make sure uh, during these discussions there are no potential serious interactions that could occur and perhaps produce harm. You should review your symptoms that you might have. And, and again, make sure you write these down so that they're discussed. And these may include chronic symptoms or new ones. And you also would want to ask how they might be associated with either your treatment or the disease itself. It is important to maintain quality of life during treatment and also to document uh, uh, effects uh, during your treatment and management that may be affecting the quality of life. Uh, you clearly need to define your goals for your care, including treatment, what you understand about your disease, who in your family will participate in your care, and who can communicate with your health care team. A little bit about telehealth. Uh, telehealth has actually been around for years. However, it has now become much more formalized and can replace or supplement a regular office visit. As an aside, it's important for you to know uh, that uh, you are likely going to be charged just as you would uh, an office visit. And you also need to know if there are any limitations imposed by your insurance company. Uh, COVID-19 has resulted in tremendous expansion of telemedicine, at least temporarily. And this may change over time. Uh, I, I think most of us believe telemedicine will continue to be 
incorporated in terms of uh, health care, uh, but uh, there are likely to be changes, and we're going to have to keep up with these changes. Much can be discussed during the telemedicine visit uh, to fully inform your clinician as to how you are doing, how you are tolerating treatment, and what symptoms you are experiencing. With video conferencing, it is also possible to conduct at least a limited physical exam, such as looking at your skin, eyes, and mouth. In terms of a telemedicine, you should prepare yourself as you would an office visit. You should write down your questions, write down your symptoms, have, have family members and or friends join in to uh, serve as an extra pair of ears and also to help take notes for you. Make sure you're reviewing recent labs and procedures and, and scan results during the telemedicine visit. Um, also review when a telemedicine is adequate and when an office visit uh, should resume. If there are planned delays in procedures in your treatment or tests, or if you are requesting such, make sure to discuss the risks versus the benefits. You do not want to jeopardize the potential benefits of evaluation and or treatments by delays, and it is imperative to discuss how long of a delay would be considered safe if such was chosen. And finally, just a, a little bit more about uh, COVID-19. Uh, our hospitals and outpatient facilities have taken enormous precautions to keep patients and staff safe and have done so by altering or limiting visits to the healthcare facilities whenever it is safe and reasonable to do so, and have practiced deep cleaning, safe distancing, and wearing of masks as critical uh, examples of this. Um, also, uh, um, with... Uh, uh, office visits uh, when when people are actually coming to these facilities, uh, often people are asked to go to the examining room by themselves. And what I would suggest, if that is indeed the case, uh, make sure that you have your phone or computer so that friends or relatives may actually be able to call in and participate in the visit. Uh, I think these precautions have proven helpful uh, when dealing with this highly infectious virus in a situation where there is no vaccine and people do not have immune protection. When you leave your home or if there are invited people coming to your home, practice social distancing and wear masks. And as various places are opening up, such as restaurants, ask ahead of time if masks are required and enforced, if social distancing is used, and even the type of cleaning precautions that are, are taking place. Uh, the bottom line is we're going to need a vaccine to maximally protect people and 
the hope is that such will evolve. Uh, but with that, uh, I'll conclude my remarks, and thanks for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding and, and really uh, just a really call out to uh, clinical trials and also to all the guidelines um, in terms of the telehealth appointments, in terms of being prepared for them, and, of course, the, the uh the, uh, you're, you're ending by talking about social distancing and masks and gloves, really important um, to decrease exposure to COVID-19. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, Hospital Pathology Associates PA, Divisions of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Perinatal Pathology and Molecular Diagnostics, Lead Pathologist for Next Generation Sequencing Development and Practice, Alina Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospital, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Dr. Kerr is going to be addressing the role of the pathologist, benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine, and tips on how to, con to contact pathologists by phone. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you all the role of pathology in cancer care and to reiterate how a diagnostic pathology report and additional diagnostic technologies, including so-called biomarkers, are part of individualized or precision medicine in the care of cancer patients. First, I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. I think of pathology as all of the behind-the-scenes work that occurs in a clinical laboratory in the practice of medical care. So every time you get a blood drawn or a biopsy or have surgery, a laboratory handles all of those specimens from you and performs certain tests. A medical laboratory is made up of teams of staff who specialize in various kinds of testing, including blood testing, testing for infections, small biopsy evaluation, and the processing of large surgical resection specimens as are produced during major cancer surgeries. COVID-19 testing had to be rapidly developed over the last several months in medical laboratories and has been a major issue for us, as you may be hearing about in the news. So basically anything that is drawn or removed or sampled from a patient in a medical setting is handled in a pathology laboratory. So what does a pathologist do in all of this? The portrayal of pathologists in TV shows and movies has been historically kind of scary, frankly, and has focused on what is called forensic pathology or autopsy pathology in the setting of solving crimes. This skill is actually a very small part of a pathologist's initial training, and most pathologist doctors do not practice forensic pathology. So most pathologist doctors specialize in some aspect of medical laboratory testing and then join a team of other pathologists to participate in the leadership and function of a medical laboratory. Next, I want to talk about how those biopsies and surgery specimens get from a patient to a pathologist 
for the various tests that are needed in cancer patients for precision medicine. I see a lot of lung cancer in my practice, so I will use that as an example. My typical patient will first find out that they have a tumor growing in their lung on an X-ray, CT scan, or other imaging study. And although in many patients lung cancer is expected from the way the tumor looks on imaging, uh, as Dr. Chris mentioned, a tissue biopsy is absolutely needed to make sure uh, as there are a variety of other types of tumors and infections even that can look similar on CT scan. So a doctor who specializes in getting these small biopsies will carefully place a small needle in the tumor and remove some very tiny tissue fragments from the tumor. And these samples are then placed either directly on glass slides or are placed in a preservative solution in a small bottle. And so I sometimes actually go into the room during a biopsy and look at the cells under a microscope while the patient and biopsy doctor are still in the room so that I can tell them whether they have enough cells for all of the tests that we need to perform. It is so helpful for all of us to be in the room at the same time so that we can work together to try to get the best sample. After that biopsy then, all of the slides and bottles of tissue go to the laboratory for further processing. The tissue in the bottles is processed into a little block of wax and then cut into very fine, thin sections that are placed onto glass slides to look at, again, under a microscope. This is called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded processing, or FFPE for short. You may have heard this term. The pathologist looks at all of these glass slides then and tries to decide what the tumor is that was biopsied. If we see cancer in the biopsy, we have to determine specifically what the kind of cancer is. In lung cancer, for example, there are important decisions that are made based on if the tumor is what's called adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, or small cell carcinoma, which are all different kinds of lung cancer with different treatments. For example, in lung cancer, Adenocarcinoma treatment is the most likely to be influenced by the result of these biomarker tests. So we have a different testing pathway for adenocarcinoma than we typically do for other types of lung cancer like small cell carcinoma. This process of making a diagnosis does take a few days with all of the tests that we need to do, um, but it actually can take shorter or longer depending on the tumor type and how typical the tumor is versus something unusual or rare. Uh, and so after all of this work in the laboratory, a cancer patient and their doctors will receive at least two or three different types of pathology reports. The first report is the diagnostic report, which contains the final diagnosis for the tumor. The diagnosis is based on the appearance of the tumor under a microscope in addition to perhaps other types of stains that we do on tumor tissue and also look at under a microscope. This diagnostic pathology report is the basis of many decisions that will happen next in the treatment of a patient's cancer. 
And in fact, some studies have suggested that up to 80% of medical decisions are based upon pathology reports and other laboratory results. The next type of pathology reports associated with the biopsy are, are the biomarker reports. Next generation sequencing, as the prior speakers have described, and other molecular reports will summarize what is going on in the tumor that may be useful for personalized treatment. Testing for biomarkers can take a few weeks more after the initial diagnosis, which I know can be frustrating, uh, but we are getting faster at this all the time, and it's my hope that, that uh, this wait won't be as long in the future. Molecular biomarker testing looks at differences in the cancer cells in comparison to other normal cells in the body. So cancer cells are typically growing out of control due to changes in their programming, uh, which is commonly referred to as DNA. So when we're talking about DNA, we're talking about the, basically the programming of a cell to, to do its functions, and when that changes, that can change how the cells grow in the body, and, and it, when they grow rapidly, they create a cancer or a tumor. These changes in the DNA come in a variety of flavors that you might hear about, uh, and these changes in cancer cells are most commonly called mutations, uh, but you might hear about things like gene expression or fusions or amplifications or other words. Uh, and all of these words describe changes in the cancer cells that are different from the normal cells in the body. And, uh, Cleverly, researchers have found ways to make medicines that will block some of these mutations in the cancer. So, for example, the EGFR gene mutation in lung cancer now has a variety of medicines that can be used to block that mutation and stop the cancer cells from growing. In some cases, uh, we also want to know if the cancer is producing too much of something. So, um, as the prior speakers have have covered briefly, you may have heard about PDL1 testing in a number of different cancer types. With PDL1 testing, what we're actually doing is looking under a microscope at a, at a stain to determine whether the cancer may be using this protein called PDL1 to hide from the immune system. And if the PDL1 pathway is blocked by a medication, the body can actually fight the cancer cells better, just like it would fight off an infection. And so all of this testing information for cancer will be described in one or more of these pathology reports. So I encourage you to have a copy of your pathology reports, especially as you're getting multiple opinions from different doctors, uh, especially if you're moving between systems where the medical records uh, might not talk to each other. And I, I know that pathology reports can be difficult to understand at first, especially if you don't have a medical background, because the terms that we use are, are very specialized and really a, a different language. And so if you have questions about your pathology reports, I would start with your oncologist or primary care doctor who you know and trust. And it is very likely that they have also discussed the pathology report with the pathologist already and they may be able to answer all of your questions. 
Uh, and because they know a lot of things about your health, they may be able to put the diagnosis and mutation information from the biomarkers in perspective when you are talking about treatment plans. I do also have patients call the laboratory to speak to me as their pathologist, and I want to let you know that this is also an option by calling the phone number that is listed on your pathology report. I want to let you know, though, that there are some difficulties that are often encountered when patients try to communicate with pathologists by phone. Um, as a pathologist, I just realized that I am not able to recognize who is calling me on the phone since I, you know, I typically haven't met the patient uh, when I make a diagnosis. And so I want to make sure that I can verify that the person I'm talking to is actually the patient and not someone else trying to get private medical information. Sometimes um, I get calls from oncologists when the patient is on speakerphone in the room with them. And, and that way I can talk about the pathology report with both the oncologist and the patient at the same time, and that works really well. Uh, as a pathologist, I only know the information that I read about you in the medical record, and so I may not have all of the information that your oncologist has, and this collaboration is, is so important. And so, um, just another resource that I recommend is actually through a professional pathology organization called the College of American Pathologists. If you go to the website yourpathologist.org, that's yourpathologist.org, there's, there's special information for patients on a variety of laboratory testing topics, including now COVID-19 at the top of the website, but also, if you scroll down, there's a really great video on reading and understanding a pathology report. And afterwards, Cancer Care can also help you get to this resource uh, after the conference. So thanks so much for listening to me talk about pathology and biomarkers today. I'm now going to turn over the conference back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding and really uh, take, took some of the mystery out of the pathology reports and, and, and also made them just more accessible. And I, we will uh, thank you for mentioning that. Um, all of you will be getting an evaluation after, within two days of today's program. And, of course, we'd like your feedback, but also the evaluation will include any resources that we gave during the program itself or that we've given before the program. And this resource in particular will be highlighted for all of you um, so that you'll be able to utilize it, and uh, and I, it sounds like a, a really major find. So thank you so much, Dr. Kerr, for for um, mentioning that and to, and to um, uh, and, and for your excellent presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. Thank you. Now we are going to take questions in a, just about a minute or two. I'm going to say a few words about cancer care. So please um, start to uh, enter your questions. If you have questions, please send them in, and we'll try to take as many of them as possible. So I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm an oncology social worker and director of education and training with Cancer Care. And I'd like to go over with you uh, Cancer Care's free programs that we now offer. Um, we really um, offer a host of services. We are a national organization. Um, and so that um, we have a hope line that people call, 1-800-813-4673. Um, um, and you, in that, can talk with one of our oncology social workers. 
And we also have a website, www.cancercare.org. Our oncology social workers are here to help you with an array of different services, from practical uh, issues to financial assistance. Financial assistance is restricted to people in the United States. However, if you're somewhere else in the world and need help and you email us at Cancer Care, one of our staff will definitely get back to you to try to help link you with a resource. And even for those of you in the U.S., if for some reason there's an issue you have that we're not able to help you resolve, we will definitely get you connected to a resource that can help you. Our staff, our oncology social work staff, are incredibly knowledgeable about resources that are out there um, throughout the country as well. Uh, the, um, the practical and financial assistance is very important, as well as our copay assistance program. And in addition to that, we offer support, and you can get that support by talking to one of our oncology social workers about issues of concern to you um, that you would like to talk with someone about. Um, and I think that many uh, people call us um, to talk about the context that we live in today, some of the issues that they're struggling with, both having cancer and living in the environment that we live in right now with COVID-19. Um, people also call about many different areas of concern of theirs that they would just like some help with. So I definitely uh, recommend that you contact our, um, our oncology social workers for assistance and help. Now, with that being said, we now do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Crystal will explain to you how to ask questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one. So a question for Dr. Chris to start with. What role does liquid biopsies play in diagnosing cancer for one of our online participants? Yeah. Um, the uh, liquid biopsy is a way of uh, analyzing the uh, DNA in the cancer cell. Uh, and as I mentioned before, uh, a, a small amount of the DNA in the cancer cells, in the cancerous tumor, finds its way into the bloodstream of people with cancer. And uh, through the wonders of technology and our molecular pathologists, they can find that those little tidbits of DNA that belong to the cancer and analyze them and to look for mutations or fusions or things that could lead to therapy. Um, so. Compared to the need of a biopsy to get DNA, it's much easier to get it from the blood. Um, there are some drawbacks, however. Um, the first thing is, when they have compared the results in tissue to the results in blood, their, their tissue results are still a bit better. So about three-quarters of the mutations that are found in tissue can be found in the blood. That said, if they are found in the blood, it is absolutely reliable. Finding an EGFR mutation in blood is the same as finding it in tissue. Um, so it's a very useful test. Um, it is needs to be interpreted. Uh, a negative test needs to be carefully assessed by your oncologist. Uh, and it does not always um, negate the need for a tissue 
diagnosis, but it, it clearly can be helpful for many, many patients. And as I mentioned before, the very presence of DNA can be used as a sign whether your cancer has been completely eradicated or not by various treatments. So helpful that way too. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Benson. Uh, this is from one of our online participants. A few years ago, my oncologist moved to another state, and I saw his replacement. She tested my tumor prior to the time limit of then, at that time. The tumor was done away with um, five years. Surgery, 2013. In 2018, a biopsy was taken after 3D mammogram in Abbas. Can that tissue be re-evaluated and updated? So uh, if there's a new biopsy, uh, certainly um, testing can be performed on, on that biopsy. And in fact, um, what we've noticed as, uh, as tumors uh, evolve over time and tumors that spread to other locations, the biology of these tumors can change. There's a, the concept of tumor heterogeneity. Most tumors are not one type of tumor cell, but a collection of tumor cells that have different biological characteristics. And so uh, a, a tumor that was evaluated in 2013 may be very different from a tumor that is uh, analyzed more recently. And also, uh, in, in years that have passed, the technology has rapidly changed. And, and so there may be uh, new techniques and new mutations, for example, that need to be analyzed. So it is important if a person has a new tumor biopsy to discuss uh, what tests are being done. Uh, uh, are there uh, molecular or genomic tests that are being done that could inform the oncologist as to treatment selection? I hope Excellent. that answers the question. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, so here's another question um, for Dr. Chris. Can biomarkers be used to monitor treatment progression? Um, so the, the answer is can biomarkers be used, and the, the answer is yes. I think probably one of the more common ones used are, are blood tests for proteins, uh, CA199, CA125, uh, where your uh, physicians can check blood before treatment and then after and see if the amount of the uh, protein in the blood has changed. Uh, the other way is uh, through the use of a DNA analysis. Uh, you can look for cancerous DNA before and after treatment, or if a treatment has been successful in eradicating the DNA, continually watching the blood and see if the DNA has, has reappeared. Um, it's also used in uh, patients that have uh, not not just like lung or colon cancer, but also uh, hematologic cancers, uh, looking for uh, remnants uh, of uh, remaining cancer cells, uh, and it's very, very useful useful for that and, and commonly used. MRD is the term minimal residual disease. People look for that in the blood and use that to decide whether or not to reinitiate therapy or propose a, di a different therapy. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Kerr. Um, 
how accurate are pathology reports for prostate cancer? Would it make sense to get a second opinion? That's a really great question. Um, so something that I've talked about on other um, conferences for cancer care is second opinions in pathology. And specifically for prostate cancer, I think also applies across other cancer types. Um, the difference between one pathologist's opinion and another pathologist's opinion on, for example, prostate cancer grade or how much cancer is there, or even the presence or absence of cancer when the cancer is very small, um, there can be disagreements there. And so, you know, I, I think it's always, if you have access to it, a, a great idea to ask your oncologist or other doctors whether they think uh, another opinion on the biopsy interpretation uh, would be helpful. Uh, and I'm always a big advocate for that. We actually build that into our practice often. So in the practice that I'm in right now, when we make a diagnosis of cancer, we actually, as per protocol, have another pathologist look at the biopsy and make sure that they agree before we sign it out. And I know that's, that's become the standard of care in a lot of centers. So when you get a pathology report, often more than one pathologist has looked at it, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you might not get more information from having, you know, a pathologist at a different institution look at it, especially if the cancer is small, like they are sometimes in prostate cancer, um, or if it's just a rare tumor type or something that was difficult to diagnose. And so um, often if you talk to your oncologist about whether they think a second opinion on the pathology read is warranted, they can help you navigate that process. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, another question from one of our online participants. Um, what's the difference, and this would be, for uh, Dr. Chris, what's the difference between personalized and precision medicine? Um, I, I think both of those terms refer to uh, the same uh, uh, the same thing, uh, and that is to uh, not just treat a illness. Not just again, I'm a lung cancer doctor. I I talk about lung cancers quite a bit. Not just treat lung cancer, but treat the very specific kind of lung cancer in that person. So, for example, does that lung cancer harbor a, 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 a mutation in the MET gene, MET gene, so that patient wouldn't just get a treatment that works in all lung cancers, they would get a specific treatment for uh, those cancers that are driven by aberrations in the, the MET gene. So uh, I think both terms uh, pretty much say the same thing, mm -hmm. but that is doing the best job we can matching our treatments to the very specific characteristics of the cancer in that that person. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And um, Dr. Benson, um, can you talk about screening for genes like BRCA, BCRA? Yes, so um, uh, I think Dr. Chris uh, mentioned that there's uh, there are differences in terms of genes we see that evolve in a tumor and genes that you are uh, born with that might predispose you to a uh, cancer. And so um, a very, very critical component 
of an evaluation of an individual person is to understand their family history and to try to determine if an individual uh, could uh, uh, carry a gene that they were born with that could predispose them to developing a cancer. And if that is the case, uh, it is important to refer that individual to a genetic counselor uh, who can uh, carefully review and uh, if it's agreed upon, to then do a, a blood test to see if, in fact, uh, that gene uh, is present that would predispose a person to uh, a cancer. And the reason that is important is, first of all, uh, in some cases when we determine this, there are uh, important uh, treatment considerations. So, for example, I'm a GI medical oncologist, and there's been recent work about the BRCA gene in pancreatic cancer, uh, what's called a germline mutation, meaning the person was born with that. And we now have a treatment that is specific uh, for individuals with pancreatic cancer and the BRCA gene mutation. Um, it can also uh, affect how an individual is screened over time, and, and also people may be at risk for more than one cancer that can influence how you screen. And then finally, it's also important because if, if you do have a germline mutation, other family members may also carry that gene and should also be referred uh, for screening. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. This will be our last question from Dr. Chris. Can biomarkers be used to monitor treatment progression? Uh, they, they can. Uh, again, both protein biomarkers uh, and uh, measurements of the DNA uh, in the bloodstream. Um, the latter is um, probably most commonly used now in hematologic cancers, uh, the former uh, uh, particularly in uh, solid tumors like ovarian cancers or, or colorectal cancers. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You have been phenomenal, and all of our participants as well um, who have asked really such great questions online. These have been Terrific questions, and our speakers have been in, in, uh, wonderful in pro providing information on this topic, which is really, really now driving, of course, uh, the best cancer treatment that, that we have. Um, so, understanding the, the role of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the treatment of cancer is just so important. Now, I know there are many more questions in queue, and so I do want to actually um, say a few words about moving forward what you can all do. For those of you who still have questions in queue or those of you who asked a question or listened to a question that someone asked and made you think of another question, we recommend that you take it back to your treating healthcare team. We definitely want you to, you know, never sidestep your healthcare team. They know the most about you, of course. Um, they know all the details of your your treatment and your you know, they know everything about you, and so they're good people to start with. But we also know that you like to go to credible resources um, to get uh, your, you know, to get in more information before you ask your healthcare team. And so we're going to be sending you the evaluation, and in the evaluation will be very credible resources that you could consult with 
um, that really um, to get the information that you that you feel you need, but from sites that really are very carefully monitored, which means, and particularly in today's era, we want them to be almost the same month and, and year to some extent, just because of the COVID-19. And we also want to be sure that you also, um, and sometimes even the same day and year to some extent, if it's COVID-19 information you're seeking. Um, indeed, um, and if you're seeking information about a particular type of cancer, again, to go to those sites that are um, groups that are some of the nonprofit organizations um, and some of the uh, for the ASCO.net, uh, cancer.net, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology's website. So there are a lot of different sites, and we, of course, now have the pathology um, site to go to as well for information about pathology reports. So we will send you a listing of those sites to go to, and we really recommend that you get your information both from your healthcare team and from recommended sites um, that um, we'll be sending you and your healthcare team may recommend you as well. Um, Cancer.gov, which is the National Cancer um, Institute's website, is a wonderful place to go to as well. Um, and for those of you who wish to pursue further services and support from Cancer Care, um, I would certainly suggest that you go ahead and call our oncology social workers and our Hope Line or visit our website um, to access resources. Most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave the call today feeling that you are alone. We know that with social distancing that many of you may feel more alone right now, and it's normal to feel alone in general, sometimes with cancer, and then, of course, with um, the social distancing, of course. Um, so. Nevertheless, we want you to know that there is a whole community of support for you out there for you to access um, in moments when you really feel like you really need someone to talk to. Your healthcare team, of course, and of course, um, some of the organizations that we'll recommend that do have um, both Cancer Care's Hopeline and other organizations that you may be able to contact for support. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, um, for your being on the call, and I want to thank you all. I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.